I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saded 13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. We're back after a Christmas break, continuing coverage of the Gaza War. And things have taken a very disturbing turn since Christmas because we now have Figures like Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as op-eds in places like the Jerusalem Post, calling for Gazans to be taken in by other countries. Uh, One of the words used is absorbed by other Arab countries. Uh, Netanyahu has called this plans for a voluntary migration. Voluntary migration, of course, I say that with uh, air quotes. Those are his words. In any case, Palestinians are seeing this as proof of a planned expulsion. A new Nakba. The Nakba, of course, being the 1948 expulsion of the Palestinians. It's all very disturbing stuff. Now, before these statements came about in the past few days, I spoke with the Holocaust and Genocide Studies scholar, Raz Sigal, who made waves in October for a piece he wrote in Jewish Currents entitled A Textbook Case of Genocide, where he argued that genocidal intent could be found in the statements of Israeli officials during the initial phases of the bombardment of Gaza. We spoke for a little less than an hour about the PC wrote and the reactions to it. I hope you will find this conversation enlightening. And with that, let's get right to it with Raz Sigal. 
Welcome to Parallax News. A guest that I'm very happy to be speaking with. He is a genocide studies scholar and Holocaust historian. He was recommended to me actually by the genocide studies scholar Dirk Moses, who's a good friend of the show. Uh, his book, The Problems of Genocide, uh, is a rather provocative and I, I think powerful read. But Dirk suggested him. Our guest is Raz Siegel. Uh, who recently wrote a piece in Jew Jewish Currents in October that really sort of took uh, uh, the internet by storm in a lot of ways, at least when it came to the discourse around the war in Gaza. And that article was called A Textbook Case of Genocide. He also wrote a piece in The Guardian entitled Israel Must Stop Weaponizing the Holocaust. How are you doing, Raz? Good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just to start out... Uh, would you like to maybe give your own background uh, of how you got into studying, uh, you know, the issue of genocide uh, and studying the Holocaust and, and maybe giving listeners an idea of the meaning and, and legal definition of genocide as opposed to uh, other crimes against humanity and war crimes? Yeah, so I mean, my my own uh, uh, professional background originally is in actually Jewish history, and um, with a focus on on the Holocaust. Uh, that was my uh, master's uh, uh, degree. Actually, afterwards, I did a PhD in history and Holocaust uh, and genocide studies, uh, and um, you know, worked. Uh, uh, on state violence uh, in 20th century European history with a focus on uh, World War II and the Holocaust and the way that it's, you know, that we should look at state violence during World War II as an integral part of this broader phenomenon of state violence during the uh, late modern world, basically. So 20th century and until today. Um, uh, in that frame, I also, uh, uh, you know, worked and published on uh, uh, issues uh, such as the uh, weaponization of the discourse about uh, anti-Semitism in relation to Israel-Palestine, um, and then also on issues of state violence in the case uh, of Israel. And, you know, I wrote a bit about apartheid, uh, about other issues. So uh, uh, I've been writing for a few years uh, uh, also about uh basically state violence in in the case of Israel. Um, so uh, to the issue of uh, Israel's attack on Gaza and my argument about uh, genocide, I think that there's, you know, there's one very important misconception that needs to be addressed. Um, and it has been actually addressed quite a lot in the last couple of months, but it persists. Um, that genocide... Um, is not, uh, uh, we see genocide not when all, or not, or usually not, and not necessarily, when all members of a targeted group are killed immediately, right? Uh, that's not, right, uh, 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 required in order uh, to recognize mass violence as genocide, Okay. This misconception, of course, is rooted in uh, uh, the misconception that in order for uh, mass violence to be considered genocide, it has to, quote unquote, look like the Holocaust, 
right? Now, there's a misconception within a misconception here, of course, because the Holocaust was also not like that, right? Uh, uh, it took it actually took the Nazis two and a half years um, of an attack against Jews, of various forms of mass violence against Jews, and one of the main ones was forced displacement, actually, or what we what more commonly called ethnic cleansing, right? Um, so it took them from fall 1939 to the spring of 1942 to experiment with various forms of trying to push Jews out of German-controlled territory, right? Expanding in, you know, German-controlled territory um, until they reached their final version of the final solution of the Jewish question that is killing all Jews within German reach in September 1942, right? So even there's a there's a clear misunderstanding actually of what the Holocaust was, right? That then drives a misconception of what genocide is, right? So this this is important to address uh, uh, immediately. And you actually you know some of the critiques against uh, uh, what I wrote uh, since that piece in Jewish Currents uh, uh, and later on are rooted in this misconception and they're and this misconception is you know repeated also by scholars scholars who are not do not actually work on genocide do not actually work on mass violence and certainly are not interna not international legal experts right uh, but nevertheless reproduce this misconception about what genocide is now the way that we look at genocide uh, in international law there's only one way it's the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment, the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide from December 1948. And there are two things, okay, that differentiate the crime of genocide in international law from other crimes in international law. Now, it's important to say that, again, contrary to popular conceptions, okay, there is no hierarchy in international law. Okay, it's not that genocide is, you know, worse than say war crimes or crimes against humanity. It's different crimes with different elements. Okay, now it, we should also remember that for people targeted by mass violence, by state violence, right, it really doesn't matter, right, how it's defined as it's unfolding, right. So there's there is no this idea of hierarchy, right? Does not exist actually in international law. Nevertheless, there are two things that differentiate the crime of genocide from other crimes in international law. One is the requirement for intent, right? So you have to have, uh, in the language of the convention, intent to destroy, right, in whole or in part, a group that's defined in ethnic, racial, religious, or national terms. Right. And uh, as such. So that means as such that members of the group need to be targeted because of their real or perceived group membership or in any case, however, the perpetrators and understand their group membership as such. So not as individuals. Right. Uh, uh, not because of anything they did or because of anything that the perpetrators imagined that they did, but because of their uh, 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 the way that they're understood to be belong to this uh, group. Intent is very difficult to prove, and that's what this is a very high threshold, and that's why we don't have many cases recognized as genocide, right, since the convention, right? Very, very few. Rwanda genocide, I mean, in all the 
uh, violence of the form of the wars in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Only the Srebrenica massacre uh, uh, is recognized as genocide. Very few cases because of this high threshold of intent. It's very difficult to prove intent. It's important to say right here that in the case of Israel's attack on Gaza, intent is expressed clearly, explicitly, directly, and unashamed way over time. Right. And using various mechanisms, actually, we can get more into that. But this is very important. It's not, as has been argued, only the first week after the 7th of October, Hamas led attack and mass murder uh, of about 1,200 uh, Israelis on 7th of October. Right. It's not only the first week after that where we hear these statements of intent. No, it's over time. And uh, it's using various uh, mechanisms. So intent is one thing that differentiates genocide from other crimes under international law. The other thing, which is very important specifically in this case, is the legal obligation, right, uh, in the convention that once there is clear indication that, that there's a very clear risk of genocide or that genocide is unfolding, there is a legal obligation on states to intervene to stop it, and there's also legal obligation to prevent it, right? If there's, again, if there's a clear risk that we're facing uh, genocide, that also uh, uh, makes it different than other crimes uh, under international law. Now, with intent, of course, intent itself is not enough. You also have to... Um, uh, address the dynamics of violence on the ground, right? So you have to show that intent is also matched by dynam dynamics of violence on the ground uh, to, to show genocide. And that's also related to the issue of capacity, right? So you have to actually have the capacity, right, to carry out genocide. In the case of, in a, the convention lists five acts of acts that are considered genocide, killing members of a group, uh, causing serious bodily or mental harm, deliberately inflicting on the group's conditions of life calculated to bring about its destruction in whole or in part, preventing birth in the group, and then also forcibly transferring children from one group uh, to another. It's important to note, of course, that it, the first act is killing members of the group, but it's enough to show one of the acts of genocide, right, with intent in order to, to show that genocide is happening. So genocide in the le international legal framework actually could happen without any mass killings, right? Uh, not to mention, you know, why has Israel not killed all the Palestinians in Gaza so far? Clearly not genocide. It's wrong in its historical, you know, understanding of what genocide is, wrong in its historical understanding of what the Holocaust is, and simply has no connection whatsoever to the international legal framework about genocide. If you could, uh, maybe you can take us through the mechanisms for determining the intent to commit genocide? Because I, I think we do have some very worrying statements from Israeli officials even early on, and it's it's getting worse now. Yeah, I mean, um, the there's, there's, there's no mechanism, as it were. I mean, if there's evidence, Right, and that's what we're talking about. And in this case, there's an abundance of evidence. And I have to say, by the way, that insofar as intent goes, I have not yet seen, right, a clear argument and a clear legal argument how all the expressions of intent that we've seen since, since 7th of October until today, right, 
are not are, do not constitute genocidal intent, right? So I've seen people wave it away, right? Saying, oh, this is not genocide, this is not genocidal intent, fine, that's not an argument, that's waving it away, right? Uh, but I have not yet seen, right, how taken together, people, what's called in international law, with command authority, so state leaders, uh, war cabinet ministers, and senior army officers, taken together how, how their expressions statements over time uh, do not constitute intent. And it's important to say that, so from the very beginning, we have uh, these uh, uh, intent to destroy. So the the when I say mechanism, I meant various ways of expressing this intent. So one way, for example, is there are no innocent civilians in Gaza, right? Now, Israeli President Yitzhak Herzog expressed this very clearly very early on, on 13th of October, in a press conference, again, directly, unashamed. He said, all the nation there, right, referring to the Palestinians in Gaza, so 2.3 million people, half of whom are children and youth under the age of 18, right, all the nation there is responsible, that's what he said, responsible, of course, for the Hamas attack, right? Now... So that's one kind of uh, uh, mechanism uh, that we've seen about uh, intent. Now, this is repeated in various uh, ways, and it's important to say, by the way, another issue that's tied to genocide that makes it different, actually, than other crimes as well, is the crime of incitement to genocide, which is a different crime in the convention, uh, but, it's, but it's related, of course, to genocide, because the mechanism of taking a whole civilian population and portraying them as basically legitimate military targets, right? First of all, it's a very common genocidal discourse. So we can think about the Armenian genocide, where the Ottoman authorities took the whole Armenian population of the empire and said they're basically agents of the Russian enemies, right, during World War I. And that was the rational uh, to uh, arrest them, rob them, uh, uh, deport them in these uh, brutal death marches to the Syrian Iraqi deserts and on the way to to kill them. So it's a very common genocidal uh, mechanism, but it's been repeated, right, in Israeli media, in Israeli politics, in public spaces, right, from the 7th of October. So um, just, you know, on the 1st of December, if to take a fairly recent uh, uh, and dominant example, uh, a member of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, Avigdor Lieberman, who was, you know, uh, not too long ago considered a very extreme far-right Israeli politician, but now is pretty mainstream, wrote on his social media just, you know, very explicitly, right, there are no innocent civilians in Gaza, right, for examples, right? We see in Israel public spaces from the 7th of October, right, posters hanging on bridges and highway in the highway in Tel Aviv, right? That, for example, uh, state explicitly that the picture of triumph is zero people in Gaza, right? So the idea basically that all the people in Gaza are legitimate military targets, it's, it's expressed early on by the Israeli president. It's, it's a very common genocidal mechanism. It's repeated uh, in incitement in Israel media, politics, and public spaces. And it's important to say, and this is 
this is again something that gives us an indication of what's going on that in many videos that Israeli soldiers and officers have recorded themselves, have created themselves and posted on social media, they echo this language. So in a recent video, for example, from 8th of December, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there is a recording that again, soldiers took a video of them dancing and singing a song that they created. Uh, the song is, is basically they're saying, we are here in Gaza to wipe out the seed of Amalek. I'll get to that in a minute, right? This refers, of course, to uh, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's reference to the biblical story of Amalek. Uh, so they say, we are here to wipe out the seed of Amalek. And our slogan, they say our slogan is there are no innocent civilians in Gaza. Right. So this is, again, very clearly direct. It's unashamed. Right. How the soldiers and the officers in the Israeli army. Right. They understand perfectly well. Right. The language of intent from the people with command authority and how it's then reproduced. Right. In incitement in Israeli media culture and public spaces. Another mechanism that I just mentioned is, of course, again, it's a quite a far, so it's end of 29th of October when Israel started its ground invasion into Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu referred to the biblical, invoked the biblical story of Amalek. And it's important to say Amalek, the story, has no multiple interpretations. It is a story about total destruction, total destruction, right? Uh, the Israelis, uh, Israelites are commanded by God to destroy the Amalek completely, okay, as their enemy. When you invoke this biblical story in a state where biblical instruction is mandatory in schools, at a time when, by the way, you know, religious Zionism is incredibly powerful, so religion plays a significant role uh, and today a very strong role in Israeli politics and culture, right? When you invoke the biblical story of Amalek in this way, as I said, everyone understands what you're talking about significantly, the soldiers and the officers in the Israeli army who then sing about it, right? Understand what you're talking about. He repeated this in a special letter to the Israeli soldiers and officers in the army in early November, right? So twice invoking the uh, um, the issue of Amalek. Now we also have dehumanization, which is very, very important to mention in this context, right? It began, it's again, various forms. One of them is right immediately at the beginning, 9th of October with Yoav, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallen's total siege proclamation where he referred to Palestinians as human animals, right? And we have various forms of dehumanization. I mean, so the human animals is very clear, right? But we also have other mechanisms of dehumanization. We know that Palestinians actually have been referred to, again, in Israeli politics and media and culture since 7th of October as monsters, for example, Nazis, which is an uh, you were saying, we know that we've had Israeli officials call them monsters, and then it cut off for a, maybe like a 10-second period. I said that we know that in Israeli well, media politics and public spaces, Palestinians have been called monsters. 
So I, I refer to human animals. That's in Yoav Gallant's right, 9th of October, Total Siege Proclamation. But then there's also other forms of dehumanization like monsters. But then Nazis, which is a very common form of demonization and dehumanization, right? So this weaponization of the Holocaust that I've written about in the piece in The Guardian, right? Uh, that figures, so basically Palestinians, uh, again, a complete distortion of the Holocaust itself, right? So let's just for a second refer to this dehumanization mechanism of Nazis. So the, the, the Holocaust, of course, was powerless, stateless Jews facing a genocidal assault by one of the most powerful states at the time, Nazi Germany and its allies, right? Other states uh, uh, in Europe. Whereas here we have Palestinians who are stateless and powerless and actually have faced decades, right, of Israeli settler colonialism, military occupation, siege, uh, uh, various forms of mass violence. And we have one of the most powerful states, certainly in the region, Israel, backed by all the Western powers now, very clearly, right? So this kind of uh, a distortion of uh, this connection between powerless Jews in the Holocaust and Jews in Israel, which is very, very, very different context, right? But then the Palestinians, of course, do not are not actually victims of Israeli state violence for decades, right? And now of Israel's genocidal assault on Gaza, but they actually become the perpetrators, but not only the perpetrators, but like the ultimate evil, right, of our time. Nazis, right? This is a very crude weaponization uh, of the Holocaust and a way to demonize uh, uh, and dehumanize Palestinians uh, and legitimate the attack against them, right, as Nazis. I was I was just going to add to that. It's very similar to the rhetoric we heard coming out of Russia with regards to Ukraine. There needs to be a denazification process. And that's also what uh, Smotrich and, and Ben Giver have explicitly said, you know, we need to denazify not just Gaza, but the West Bank is what they're saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's definitely a, a link there, as I wrote in my Guardian piece, uh, uh, this discourse about denazification that, of course, Putin uh, used as justification of his invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. But then there's another uh, form of dehumanization that uh, we're seeing. And I'd like to, to quote to you from, again, Israeli President Itzhak Herzog, but uh, uh, from recently, from 5th of December, uh, he gave uh, an interview on MSNBC on 5th of December, and he said the following. He says, this war is a war that is not only between Israel and Hamas, right? And this was a response to a question about actually the high level of killings of Palestinians, right, so far in Gaza. Now, this is already very significant, Right, This war is a war that is not only between Israel and Hamas, because it's actually an admission, again, a very direct admission that the attack is actually not only against Hamas, but there's another thing going on here, right? He said it directly, right? And then he continues, it is a war that is intended really, truly to save Western civilization. He continues, we are attacked by a jihadist network, an empire of evil, and this empire wants to conquer the entire Middle East. And if it weren't for us, Europe would be next. And the United States follows, right? Now, uh, uh, so this kind of language, right, uh, actually takes 
Netanyahu's invocation of Amalek, right, to a truly global apocalyptic level, right? And it puts us really directly within the frame of this kind of war to defend Western civilization and the language, empire of evil, right? The jihadist network, all these kinds of things put us in this kind of, you know, very clearly the Western world is under attack, right? Now, this is exactly the way in which colonial powers, right, saw their control of colonized people, right, uh, all over the world. And this is how they, and what Israel is doing now in Gaza is how they reacted when colonized people actually rose up and rebelled. And we saw it, for example, in the genocide of the Herero and Nama in German Southwest Africa from 1904 to 1908, right? There's, when the Herero indeed rebelled against German colonial rule, the Germans reacted with you know, basically counterinsurgency genocidal warfare that included a quote-unquote extermination order by the German military commander there. Uh, um, and then indeed a genocide that within a couple of years almost destroyed completely uh, the Herero. We can come back to this if you want. Uh, but this is very important because Herzog's um, words here really place us within a very important framework to understand not only Israel's attack on Gaza now, but its broader context of really since the 1948 Nakba, the creation of uh, Israel in the 1948 war when 750,000 Palestinians were expelled, when there were massacres against thousands of Palestinians, where hundreds of Palestinians' villages and towns were destroyed and erased completely. So since the 1948 Nakba, really until today, this ongoing uh, Nakba that we can't understand without understanding Israeli settler colonialism, right? So this indeed, this Western framework, right, that now Herzog is again expressed very directly and clearly in no uncertain terms, right? But now on a really global apocalyptic level, right? So this Israel is this kind of last stand against right this attack on Western civilization, and if we are fighting this empire of evil, quote unquote, if we are fighting Amalek, if we are fighting Nazis, right, then everything is permissible, no law applies, and this is the reason, by the way, that we're seeing intent in such direct, explicit, and unashamed way, right? There's you might ask, you know, why are the perpetrators in this case in a very exceptional way? expressing themselves like they're expressing themselves, right? This is the reason, because they see themselves, right, as engaged in a, in a, in a war for the survival, right, of Israel, but for the survival of Israel within this, you know, Western civilization uh, framework. And like in the history of, of the West and its colonial occupation for hundreds of years over people around the world, right, uh, when they rebel, when they resist, right, the way to deal with them is counterinsurgency, genocidal warfare. If you could, with regards to the settler colonial framework for understanding Israel, I know that I'm going to have, I have a pretty wide range of listeners. I would say most of my listeners uh, probably agree with using the settler colonial framework, but I know I'm going to have a few that say, oh, th this framework 
doesn't acknowledge this about Israel. It doesn't acknowledge this. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, there's all these controversies that have come up about using the term settler colonialism to describe Israel and the Zionist project. So what is your retort to people that just think we shouldn't be using this term? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would suggest, uh, uh, I would ask these people to go and read Israeli scholars, Israeli historians, right, Zionist historians, who have actually uh, written about Israeli settler colonialism. And I'm referring for specifically, for example, to one of the most important, actually, Zionist uh, historians, Anita Shapira, who has written actually about uh, uh, the emergence of the Israeli state, indeed, as a settler colonial project. Now, why did why, why did she and others write about it in this way? Because if you look at, you know, major Zionist figures, and, you know, again, you can think about someone like uh, Zev Jabotinsky, right? Major, major Zionist, you know, visionist Zionism. I mean, for, for these, for him and for others, right, there was no question, right, that the Zionist project is a project of settler colonialism. There was no question, right, that there are people in the land where the Zionist state is supposed to, you know, to be created. There was no question that this would lead to conflict because, right, the state would need to be basically established on the on ruining, right, the indigenous society, right. Now they wrote about this, Zev Jabotinsky and uh, others. So therefore, also Zionist historians like Anita Shapira wrote about it about Israel as an explicitly settler colonial project. Now I also want to you know refer people have to understand Israel. After 1967, for example, I mean, the, it's a settler colonial project for, from 1948, right? And actually, there's also research now done by incredibly important Palestinian scholars that actually shows the settler colonial elements of a Jewish settlement in Palestine before 1948 as well. But if you take the 19, the post-1967 uh, settler project, right? in the occupied territories, in the West Bank and East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, indeed, right? These people in Israel, in Hebrew, are called mitnachlim, okay? Mitnachlim is very explicitly settlers, right? Mitnachlim is very explicitly settlers. And this is very important because, of course, the post-1967 settler movement, which was dominated and is dominated by religious Zionism, they've built their power from almost nothing, that specific group of religious Zionist settlers, right, in the early 70s, right, shortly after the occupation of the territories, to now they have basically, you know, become a very powerful political and social uh, group. Uh, you mentioned there's ministers in the current Israeli government from the uh, from the religious Zionist settler movement, Itamar Ben-Gvil, who's the uh, Minister of National Security, and uh, Betzalel Smotrich, who's the Minister of Finance and the de facto governor of the occupied uh, West Bank. But, you know, Israeli governments left and right over the years crosses, you know, uh, the, any, any kind of conventional political divide. 
have supported the settler movement uh, in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem. So now we have 800,000 Jewish settlers in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, referred to specifically as settlers. I can't, I, I really can't see how you, you, how you can address the situation not in an explicitly settler colonial framework, which is what it is, right? It's also, of course, clear violations of international law. You're not allowed to settle uh, the occupier's civilian population in occupied territory, and you're not allowed, as you're doing that, to displace the, in the, the local population. So there's also severe, ongoing decades of violations of international law. But it is a clearly explicit, from the perspective of the Israeli state and of Israelis, a settler colonial project. So I... I urge your listeners who have a problem with that to go read Zionist historians, to go read prominent Zionist figures like Zev Jabotinsky. Or just read The Iron Wall, right, by Jabotinsky. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. For example, where in The Iron Wall, he again refers, you know, very clearly to the settler colonial framework and its implications. Uh, but I also would tell them that coming to terms with the settler colonial reality, right, does not mean now, right, that the 7 million Jews on the land have to go. It's not a genocidal framework where we destroy Jewish existence on the land. No, coming to terms with it means that we understand how we arrived at the Hamas-led massacre on 7th of October. And where do we go from here? Because we know that even if you're against, if you, if you oppose the description of the reality of Israeli genocide in Gaza now, but this is clearly another quote, what's called an Israel round, right? Of, of the, the idea of a military solution, right? The military solution hasn't worked because it hasn't brought security to Israelis, right? Now, just one more minute. It hasn't brought security to Israelis, quite the contrary. Quite the contrary, as we all saw on 7th of October, right? What will bring security to Israelis is the understanding that security to Israelis depends on security to Palestinians. And security to Palestinians depends on security to Israelis. And that means that we need a framework that is not based on racism, on Jewish supremacism, on explicit discrimination in a settler colonial framework, right? But no, it means that we need some kind of a political arrangement that can take many forms, right? That is based on equality, on the recognition of everyone's humanity, on the recognition that everyone deserves dignity, right? And the recognition that everyone belongs in this place between the river and the sea. That's what coming to terms with the settler colonial reality means. I would just add to that, it brings to mind something the historian Rashid Halidi said to me, which is this idea that there could be a military solution, that you can create security for Israelis by creating permanent insecurity for Palestinians. It, it makes both Israeli Jews and Palestinians less secure, both of them. Before we close out, I just had two more questions. Could you talk about how you've seen the situation evolve since you wrote your article in October, a textbook case of genocide. What do you think the major flashpoints are with regards to how the situation has evolved since then? Of course, it's become, you know, much worse, right? I think that, you know, the Israeli leaders and the war minister cabinets and senior army officers, you know, said what they meant, uh, and then they did it, right? And that's why we have more than 20,000 
Palestinians that the Israeli attack has killed so far, uh, with about half of them children and youth under the age of 18. And we have thousands and thousands buried under the rubble, right? We have more than 60,000 uh, injured, Palestinians injured. We have about 2 million. So almost all the popu Palestinian population in the Gaza Strip has been forcibly displaced, right? Driven from north to south, right? From the Israeli evacuation order on 13th of October, and then uh, from east to west, right? From Khan Yunus towards Rafa. And I think that the direction is clear. Israel, now Israel has also bombed and targeted everything in its attack, right? So churches, mosques, universities, schools, hospitals, right? Specific groups of uh, uh, people, healthcare workers and doctors, of course, but also journalists, right? Israel has bombed agricultural fields from the very beginning, places where there is nothing there but agricultural fields. So there's all the indications that first, the targeting of food, for example, right, uh, and agricultural fields. So part of the total siege uh, proclamation, no food, no water, no fuel, no medical supplies, targeting of hospitals, right, uh, uh, in a systematic uh, way, which also, which, which of course is a horrendous violation of international law. Uh, and again, the Israel justification that there's, you know, for example, in the case of Al-Shifa, that there's a Hamas headquarters under the hospital is proven to be just false. Right? Yeah, that seems to be the justification in every case, which the justification is, well, there's a Hamas member in this building, so we have to bomb it. Yeah. Right. But it's, I mean, completely false. Uh, but the targeting of hospitals also, uh, of course, uh, means that people under total siege, in forced displacement, under bombings, right, cannot, of course, then receive medical treatment. So it enhances, it really is part of this act of genocide deliberately creating conditions of life calculated to bring about the destruction of a group in whole and in part, right? The targeting of hospitals is an integral part of this, of course, creating starvation conditions, which now many people have written about uh, and, and warned about. And really what we're seeing is that Israel has no intention, and it has actually, Israeli leaders have said so explicitly, to allow for Palestinians at any point to return to live right, in the northern part of Gaza, but really, I mean, now with Israeli operations in the southern part of Gaza. So there's no intentions of allowing uh, Palestinians to come back to live the, in, in in Gaza. And the idea, I think, is really to push them, right, into the Sinai Desert, which, I mean, again, early on, a uh, document by the Israeli Intelligence Ministry on 13th of October has outlined this uh, intent of really ethnically cleansing completely uh, the Gaza Strip of Palestinians, it's important to note here, by the way, that as I said about the Holocaust at the beginning, ethnic cleansing, right, in many cases escalates into genocide. But here we have in this an idea of deporting all the Palestinians, so 2.3 million people to the Sinai Desert. It's another genocidal indication because deserts have been used historically actually as weapons of genocide. I mentioned the Armenian genocide, the deportations to the Iraqi and Syrian desert. But we can actually think about the Herrera and Nama case that I mentioned, where indeed the Germans pushed the Herrera and Nama, chased them into the desert where they died of thirst and starvation, which is now the experience of hundreds of thousands and millions of Palestinians in Gaza, right? Daily thirst and starvation, malnutrition, 
So I think it's very clear that uh, 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 Israel has said that it will destroy uh, Gaza. It has gone on to destroy Gaza, and there's a number of people uh, who deal with military strategy and warfare experts in their fields who have uh, commented in the last couple of weeks that we have never seen such an intense, intense attack against civilians since World War II, right? So in terms of the levels of killing and the levels of destruction, uh, it may be you know, uh, 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 similar to the levels of killing and destruction in Russia's invasion of Ukraine in the first few months, so from February to May 2022, when most of the killings actually uh, happened, right? But here we're seeing really unprecedented levels. And I mean, every, you know, you don't, everyone who takes a look at, uh, at the Gaza Strip today, certainly the northern part, but not only the northern part, right? I mean, sees, sees what this means, right? total uh, and complete destruction. So since I wrote the article on 13th of October, I think it was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Israel has gone on to do what it said it intends to do. We're all witnessing this horrific uh, genocidal assault unfolding. We've yet to see any serious uh, response by the international legal system, which is signaling that it's going to fail yet again uh, uh, in this case. There are some, there, I mean, we've seen massive protests around the world, uh, uh, of course, in the US uh, in Europe, but in other places as well in the Arab world. I mean, in the US, it's the longest and largest protest since the Vietnam War, for example, right? But it's not clear how this is going to change the decisions and the approaches of political class in the US, certainly in Europe, in the UK, in Germany, right, where there's, you know, very, very... Uh, uh, deep and strong support for Israeli settler colonialism, for Israeli violence against Palestinians, and now for Israel's genocidal assault uh, on Gaza. So the situation has become worse. It's it's getting even you know more terrible and horrific by the day. There's so much more to say. Of course, the arrest of Palestinian men in northern Gaza that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. So there's various other things that we can talk about. But of course, with every passing day, we see more indications and more evidence of this Israeli genocidal assault on Gaza. And one last thing that's important to say, of course, that I mentioned, the issue of prevention, right, which makes genocide different than other crimes. We have to think about what's going on in the West Bank and the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem, and also Israeli Palestinians, uh, because Palestinians as a whole now are clearly, not only in Gaza, are in grave danger with every passing day of this attack. I know I have to let you get going. I already kept you a, a few minutes over, but r just real briefly here. Do you want to address any of the critics of your article, a textbook case of genocide? I, I think most of the criticisms were, I'm putting it crudely, but I think some of the criticisms were trash. The Howard Jacobson piece in The Guardian, I did not like that. It just seemed to amount to, well, Israel is a a state of the Jewish people. The Jewish people couldn't commit crimes like this. It's not possible. I thought that was a, a really bizarre sort of line of argumentation. Dove Waxman, who I've had on the show, I think made a, a less preposterous argument saying that, well, we can argue that these are war crimes, but he doesn't, he's not sold on genocide yet. Do you want to address any of, of those kinds of um, critics real quick here? Well, I mean, uh, uh, with regard to Dov Buxman's uh, letter that he wrote uh, and was published in Jewish Currents in response to my uh, article, 
you know, I'll just say that he makes the same, you know, he repeats the misconception about what genocide is basically in his piece, right? He says, well, you know, if if it was genocide, we'd see many more people killed. That's basically that's basically his the only argument that he makes why this is not genocide in his view, which is, as I said, unrelated to the international legal framework about what genocide is, but also unrelated to what genocide is historically and unrelated even to what the Holocaust was, right? So, you know, the, the, this critique is simply not valid. And of course, you know, it's, it's you know, important to stress again that since then, right, we're seeing unprecedented levels of killing and destruction in this attack, right? Since 7th of October, Israel's attack on, on Gaza. So that kind of critique, which I agree with you, was, I mean, it, was a, it could have been a valid critique, but the only way that it was expressed concretely was this, with this argument that is really has no relevance to the, to the discussion. You know, again, as I said, I, I invite people to show how, because we have the intent expressed so clearly, and because we have this unprecedented levels of killing and destruction, and because we have incitement in really an unprecedented way, I really think that there is no case, past or present, of a society so immersed in genocidal discourse. Rwanda may be a, a comparable case, and it's important to say that in Rwanda post-genocide, Right there was the ICTR, the post-genocide trial, where was, there was a media case as well, where journalists were actually put on trial and convicted for incitement. Right, but I invite people to show me how all this intent is clear statements of intent, right, that are matched then to destructive, unprecedented destruction on the ground, right, with incitement, right, and with the intensification, by the way, of the attack in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem, and right. How all this taken together is not genocide. Don't wave it away, right? Don't treat, uh, uh, just don't say, oh, this is just uh, the Israeli president talking here, or look what he said uh, a week after, or it doesn't work like that, right? Once you say in a press conference, right, all the nation there is responsible for the Hamas attack, and once your prime minister then says that this attack is really a war against uh, Amalek. And once you then come back and say, well, we're defending Western civilization on a global apocalyptic scale, right? Then you don't bring a statement right in the middle by someone that says, oh, we're just targeting Hamas and that makes everything go away. That's not how it works, right? So I, I invite people to make a serious argument and to present a serious argument, right? And then we can refer to it. I've yet to see that kind of serious argument. There's a lot of, uh, as you said, trash uh, uh, perspectives that really mostly, and that also piece in The Guardian that we referred to, really reproduce actually this kind of white supremacist, Jewish supremacist, settler colonial view, right, of Israel as part of the civilization. And right, the, it's the civilized world versus the barbarian hordes type right. mentality. This, yeah. So this actually reproduces a genocidal discourse. That's what it does, right? Uh, so as I said, I've yet to see a serious engagement with this. And of course, I mean, it's very clear, it's very clear why, right? The, I mean, maybe just a couple more minutes because you asked, it's worth to clarify that why Israel has impunity for decades in the international legal system. This is not, this is not just since 7th of October, right? I mean, decades and decades of military occupation, right, of a siege. I mean, Gaza was under siege for 16 years before the total siege of 9th of October, right? 
16 years, which is a clear, this total, the siege policy, clear violation of international humanitarian law. The occupation itself, right, has, has been recognized basically by everyone around the world, right, as a violation of international law, clear violations of international law, war crimes. And of course, we know that the Israeli army lies and lies. You know, we can think about Shireen Abu Akla and other cases where, uh, uh, in this case, the targeting of journalists, right? But why does Israel have this sort of impunity? Because inter the international legal system emerged after World War II and after the Holocaust with the Holocaust as the main context, right? And it was immediately made unique, exceptional, the Holocaust, because there was a need to disconnect it from colonial genocides, indeed, right? Now, once it was unique, that meant that Jews, the main victims of the, of the Nazi assault, indeed, were also unique. Now, that was an easy uh, uh, move, because Jews in Western civilization, in the Judeo-Christian world, are indeed unique. They play a foundational role. The Nazis thought that they were unique, and that's why they wanted to destroy them, because they wanted to create a Nazi world on the ruins of the Judeo-Christian world, right? Now, the international legal system took this negative Nazi view, flipped it back on its head, and now Jews play a positive, unique role again after the war. The Holocaust is unique, Jews are unique, but then also Israel, as a self-proclaimed Jewish state, is also unique. So there is an implicit discursive element, right, in the international legal discourse, and we can think about uh, uh, this in, you know, in, in, in various ways. None of this is explicit, but it's all very, very dominant discourses, right, where the idea that Israel would perpetrate crimes under international law, right, that Jews, the victims of the Nazis, right, would perpetrate mass violence, not to, not to mention genocide, even though, again, in the international legal system, there is no hierarchy, but not to mention genocide, right, became from the very beginning unimaginable, unspeakable, impossible, right? So the, the international legal system, right, in this frame of what we might say a Jewish supremacist framework, right, that there is, a, there is an element, Jews cannot commit these crimes, Right. That's why there's this whole discourse in Israel, right, that then is repeated in the West, right, that the Israeli army is the most, quote, the most moral in the world. Right. The, these, even though decades of violations of international law, these kinds. So it's all these reflections of a Jewish supremacist perspective. Right. Which means that impunity for Israel is baked into the international legal system. Right. From the very uh, beginning. So the international legal system is not meant really to address in any significant way, what we're all witnessing in front of our eyes. And that's that's one of the reasons that we're seeing this unbelievable gap between the leaders in the West, right, in the US, in Canada, in UK, in Germany, and other places, right, and the massive protests on the streets, right? And that's why, and that also includes Israelis and Jews who are very critical, right? And it's not by accident that one of the main one of the words that protesters are using, right, is indeed genocide, right? But the international legal system and the, you know, the international system more broadly, right, is not actually set up to respond to what we're now, this, this reality that we're now seeing unfolding in front of our eyes, right? Uh, but of course, it's unbelievably urgent to address it and to push as much as possible in all 
uh, and all ways to stop the violence, right, of course, to stop the violence, to prevent Israel from accomplishing its uh, intent of destroying Gaza completely and uh, removing all the Palestinians from the Gaza Strip to actually make sure that the intensified attack against Palestinians in the West Bank, occupied West Bank and Jerusalem stop, right? Uh, to prevent from violence against Israeli Palestinians to intensify, from oppression uh, against them to uh, intensify, and to finally come to terms with Israeli settler colonialism, as I said, in order to think not only how we got here, but where we go from here, right, in a way that is not uh, about total destruction, in a way where the 7 million Palestinians and the 7 million Jews about that live on this land between the river and the sea, right, can continue living on this land between the river and the sea with everyone's rights and with everyone's security ensured. I want to thank you again, Raz Segal, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, thank you. And uh, if you want to say anything in closing, uh, just I'll give you the floor. No, no, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you got something out of the conversation with Raz Segal. I'm having a lot of my emotional bandwidth taken up by this. Uh, a few more episodes coming out. Hopefully before the end of the month, I have some things I have to throw up on Patreon. If you support the work I do on Patreon, then kick me some cash at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I need to get going, but as I said, if you can, please help support me on Patreon. And uh, with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.